my daughter normally walks in when I'm doing it at home. Yeah. We do. Why not? Have your soup cooked? Nah. No. I, I, I preempted the fact that soup would be ages, so I made myself a cheese sandwich. <laughs> Hello. One, two, one, two, and one, one, two, 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 one, two. Yo, yo, yo. Uh huh, uh. Just double check that. Give me a bit of one, two. Yo, one, two, one, two. Hello. My name is Gary, and I speak far too much, far too loudly. <laughs> we probably spoke into them more than we will. Yeah, I know, but that's, it's better to be on the, the quiet side than the loud side. I think this is the kind of volume and distance that I'll be talking to and at. This will probably be enough. Yeah, hopefully. I'm going to speak probably around here, maybe. Maybe a bit further away, I don't know. Uh, Liz Eddy. Liz Eddy. I couldn't remember her name. Yeah. Li- saying, the right-hand microphone. <laughs> like, I should remember her name. <laughs> Liz Eddy. Got it. And you are Ryan Jones. Welcome to the podcast. Is that correct? Yes. Good. Ryan. I've, I've been check- checking with everyone because I was like, I've got to put your name onto the internet <laughs> forever. <laughs> yeah. So if I say it wrong. Busted. Busted. Have you finished your coffee? Yeah. Okay. I'm a monster. <laughs> Just goes <laughs> like that. Right. I think we're both in shot. Yeah. Yeah. Right. All right. Got to zone in for the the intro. The bit I always get wrong. We should get one of those music playing things, like the podcast pro thing. Yeah, yeah. I thought about that. I I just edit it in afterwards. It's easier. And then if I am. Edit it in afterwards. It means that I can re-record this bit. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's good. Cool. Right. Hello and welcome to Musical Pathways, the podcast which focuses on the different pathways musicians take in order to reach their musical goals. Today we are going to be talking to another teacher over here at Musical, so we can get to know us all a little bit better. Our guest today has had. Uh, our guest today has had. Great success as a songwriter, performer and teacher, having performed, toured around the country and organised events around the world. He even owns the very studio we sit in today. Ah. Ah. And where all the musical content is filmed. We have with us Cornwall's king of songwriting and the teacher of the songwriting (laughs) course, Ryan Jones. How's it going, Ryan? Very good. Thank you for having me. Very polite. (laughs) So, as I said at the top, we're going to have a look at a few ways in which you've grown as a musician and what you've done throughout your career. But I guess it all starts all the way back at the beginning and how music played a role in your life when you were young. Okay, so my folks were into music in a a consumer sort of way. We listened to a lot of contemporary pop that was going on at the time. Um, And I think... Coming, they were coming from a working class background and they really felt like music lessons were something that they missed out on. Right, okay. And as they 
got a bit of money behind them. They felt that they wanted their kids to experience in experience some of the things that they'd um, missed out on. So like they they would have liked to have learned an instrument. They would have but loved, never got to do it. Yeah, they would have loved to have that opportunity, and they definitely see that or saw that as a um, as something that maybe the working classes from Leicester and Sheffield, where they're from, didn't get an opportunity, and that they're more affluent peers did get that opportunity and that with learning those instruments came opportunities in life not necessarily related to music but I think when you've got the whole package the tennis lessons social the violin lessons the uh the 2-1 from a red brick university (laughs) you you have those pathways set out in front of you in our uh our, our culture so they wanted me to have piano lessons I wanted to play football with my mates in the park. <laughs> and unfortunately, my piano tutor's house, Miss Chapman, overlooked the park. <laughs> so I uh, I used to get sent off down for my piano lessons with Miss Chapman, who had a, a sort of baton next to her piano that she used to whip occasionally near your fingers when your positioning wasn't right. Uh, she was like a proper, she like, was a proper old, old school. She right, nip, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> <gasps> I was probably about nine at this point. I was still in primary school and I'd look longingly out the window whilst I was playing my major scales at my friends kicking a ball around and going, why? (laughs) And I used to plead with my parents saying, I don't want piano lessons. This isn't for me. Um, But I carried on with it. I went through a, a few grades on the piano and then I was let off when my school bus didn't tally up with my piano lessons for secondary school. Oh, right, okay. <clears throat> so I I was then allowed to drop the piano lessons and just take on my Kise Stream music at, at secondary school. I was in a detention with a girl from, I think she was a year above, maybe two years above. Right. We'd done something, I don't know. It was one of those... <laughs> scenarios where we'd be put in detention and it was happened to be in a music room or at least a room with a piano in it and when the teacher left after we had been writing out numbers from the phone book or whatever they had forced us to do at that particular time <laughs> yeah. uh, I flipped open the lid of a piano because I was nervous of being in this room with this very cool girl from two years above and I started noodling on the piano playing a few licks and I didn't know she knew my name but she turned around and she went Ryan, that's amazing. I didn't know you could play the piano. And I don't know whether I was more surprised at the fact that she knew my name or the fact that my piano piano. playing had impressed a girl. But I made that connection from an early age. I mean, it's a classic connection for most musicians (laughs) who are boys, especially, I think. Well, this this very cool older girl likes me because I can play the piano. And I had up until that point thought that playing the piano with, with Miss Chapman, bless her, who was lovely now looking back, but um, it was something that my parents wanted me to do and old people taught me how to do. I didn't make the connection that very young, cool, pretty people would go, well, that's that's a skill. That's very impressive. Quite impressive. <laughs> so it was implanted into the back of my mind that actually perhaps this piano skill wasn't the worst thing to have. Yeah. I then made friends with um, a few other guys in my year who liked music and it word got around that I could play the piano and that... They were looking for a guitarist and they said, well, if you can play the piano, you could probably learn to play the guitar. I mean, they're basically the same. They both got strings. Strings? Yeah. <laughs> they make a sound. So I went, oh, yeah, I could do that. Fine. So I bought myself a guitar. I went up to um, 
I took myself up to Plymouth and I went to a music shop in Plymouth and I bought a vintage, not an actual vintage no, guitar, but the, the, make the vintage, brand vintage. The brand vintage. Yeah. And I bought a Marshall 15G practice Pro- Acoustic, because the acoustic guitar was not loud enough already. No, it was an electric guitar. Oh, the vintage right. was, oh, a, right. it, was okay, a, it was an SG copy. Oh, yeah. Um, and this awful sounding 15G yeah, yeah, practice amp. Yeah, yeah. And that was it. That was my sound. I was ready to roll. Um, with a 15 watt amp. With my 15 watt amp. <laughs> and we used to band practice in the schoolroom. And we also used to go to my friend Niall's house, whose dad had a shed, which was a kind of isolation chamber for children. Right. Yeah, and yeah. we would be put in there. Yes, you can make as much noise as you like because this is closer to our neighbours than to yeah. us. Crack on. So we used to rehearse there. Um, and we also used to rehearse at my uh, my friend Noel's place. So the, is it like the um, the single block garage? You know, well, like, actually, like lo, lo, we we were in, we were always in the single block garage or the village hall. Yeah, village the, hall. A lot. The single block garage was the vibe that Niall's place had. But Noel's dad was a a professional musician, and he was oh, a, right, okay. a touring musician, and he couldn't think of anything better than having his son and his mates rocking out in his living room for the day. So he used to move all the sofas, set the PA system up, and it was it was ideal. So I mean, to be fair, as a parent, I, I think that'd be pretty cool. Yeah. I, I'd be all up for that. Like, What are you up to today? Down the bus shuttle with your mates? Why don't you come into the living room and bring your electric guitars? I'd feel more comfortable. I, like, that. I think that's way cooler. Like, totally. And, actually kind of cool for him to be involved a bit with his son you know yeah i think that's really nice yeah that's really nice and that was that was the thing noel's kit was always the best stuff because he had his his dad's old mm. sort of yeah, tokai yeah. copy um telecaster and yeah. all this cool cool old 60s kit that he had yeah um so that was that was ins- the inspirational bit and uh real to real copycats and things like that nice so that's that's the process, and then we wrote songs about nonsense. We we were just playing with the idea of songwriting. Nothing really meant anything. It was all just words and music at the time, or at least did, that's. What did we you thought. have um? Was any of that influenced by any of your teachers, or was it is it quite um self driven at that point? We had a guy called Mister Simpson who was an English teacher, right? And to be honest. A lot of the music teachers at our school were very classical based. Yeah. And it's kind of a sign of the times, though, wasn't it? Totally. And it was almost an annoyance that this self taught school rock band were getting the attention of the students because, hang on a minute, we've got a school orchestra that is deserved of your respect much more than these guys bashing out three chords. I think it's changed. I think that's changed massively now. Yeah. as, as, As like a bonus, nice side to it or what. I think. A lot of music teachers are, will just embrace anyone, even if they're not doing GCSE music, even if they're just a band in the school, they seem to really just embrace music making in general now, yeah. which is just awesome. I, I think I, it's such a massively good move for teachers to sure. make. I think music has become much more accepted as a cultural expression, songwriting in particular. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. So Mr. Simpson was an English teacher, and he was one of those teachers that had always planned to do English English teaching as a stopgap one summer whilst right. he was surfing around uh around the south coast the north coast. 
classic corner and then ended up being trapped in the education system yeah, yeah. but he had a he had a real um soul to him so he quite liked delving into our lyrics and understanding what we were talking about. He wasn't even our English teacher. Oh, really? None of us had him for an English lesson. He <laughs> That's was just, amazing, isn't it? He was just this old hippie dude who went, oh, you're in a band. Cool. What? Let's hear it. And he took an interest in us. So he used to sort of coach us a little bit. That's uh, kind of cool because there obviously is a massive link between lyric writing and poetry and English. Sure. You know. So yeah. Pretty, and I think it's probably actually the area where most young musicians overlook. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, they tend to come much more from a musical angle and the lyrics kind of are what they are and they, they get better at writing lyrics obviously, but, but initially at least I think the, the lyrics tend to sit on the back burner a little bit in my experience. Yeah. And so that's one of the main things that I, I teach in songwriting is Mm. this idea of something called prosody. Um, than prosody being, if you're talking about English language, it's to do with the accents in words. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, well, the accents within a line of words, in fact, in, in poetry, where you put the stresses. And in music, it's come to be understood as being a little bit more complex than that, and it's to do with the intention of your piece and every stage of your composition process relating to the intention. Yeah. So if you're writing about something that's sad, you choose a sad mode and some sad chords right, yeah, yeah. and a melody that reflects that sadness. Um, or if it's more nuanced, you might have some really sad chords and modes that reflects the character's position in the world. But then you have this really optimistic melody that reflects the character's dramatic irony and his, right, yeah, yeah. his or her ignorance to the situation. And you can create an environment that underlines the emotional intention of your song in and, the and, choices. And you see that in the great songs, don't you? You know, like the songs that last through time. They've Absolutely. they've fought beyond one part or the other. And I think it's where you um I think it's quite often where the band have worked as a unit as opposed to one person writing their part, one person writing their part and then smash it together in the middle. Sure. It's more like, you know, one person came up with a song and then each person added to it and they altered it and it molded into yeah. its final outcome. And it, sometimes that's that's a songwriter and a producer, not necessarily a band, but like more than one person working together. I think you either under you, you either understand this stuff and you contrive it or you live it. And yeah. that one one of the processes that I go through is getting people to think about their concept and their idea first and developing their lyrics early on in that stage and then building their their chords and their harmony in prosody, in relationship to those ideas. But some of the most beautiful songs that have been written have been written by people who I doubt very much were in the headspace to make those decisions. And what they did is they got home from having a heavy mind thinking about their world and their experiences and they noodled on the guitar and then some chords resonated with them and in a very primal way they didn't understand why those particular chord shapes and why those melodies worked but it struck excuse the pun struck a chord yeah. with um <laughs> with them as individuals and in doing so they were able to use it as a vehicle to express their emotional yeah, yeah. intention that they were carrying that they were living 
Um, and it's that whole thing about keep it real, man. <laughs> and you either learn learn it as an academic and understand it and empathize with it and use it as a tool, or you live your life and you experience things and you use the guitar or the piano or whatever instrument you're playing as a as an outlet to just unlock some things that are, are churning over inside. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think in both, neither direction is wrong. I think they're just two different angles at the same um, same target. Totally. <laughs> and if you're going to go into the world of um, professional songwriting, then you can't rely on a life of pain, misery and hardship <laughs> to provide, provide you with the content for all of the writers you might work with. You're going to have to find ways of empathising with other people. Yeah. Um, Especially when you do that first massive record and it goes multi, multi-platinum and you're, you know... I've said it all. Absolutely rolling in cash. Yeah, what I do mean, I say now? <laughs> well, I had this idea to write a film. Should I say this on the podcast? Is my film, film might get made. <laughs> but I, I like the idea of a A&R um, executive wanting to take their artist from out the big big second album to the third album. Right, yeah. But they're living the high life now and they, they don't have any sadness and pain. So he pays this beautiful actress to break his heart. Like, <laughs> go out there and reel him in, obliterate him. And then obviously the the narrative will be about how she can't go through with it and yeah, she falls yeah, madly yeah. in love with him and he finds something in himself. But I, I that is what the culture has become about because yeah. we've gone from Tim Pan Alley, songwriters, um, writing with a lyricist, like Elton John's a good example, um, with, work, working with Bernie Tolpin and Elton together, empathising between each other's emotional intentions with a producer bolted on, with yeah. a session band bolted yeah, on. Yeah. And so every this is a really good example of prosody, that you've got a writer creating an intention and then Elton John has empathised with Bernie's lyrics and gone, oh, I feel it, I get what you're saying, I can express this through these chord choices and yeah, this yeah. timbre. And, and then a producer's come in and gone, I like what you're doing here, boys, I see where you're going. If we do it like this, this is going to work. Yeah. And I know these session players who are going to work really well to... And it's an exaggeration at every stage of the yeah. production process. But I think that's like a, an interesting thing that gets overlooked sometimes, isn't it? Like accepting someone else's input and just trying it, even if it maybe doesn't stick in the end, you might come up with a much better idea beyond your own. And I think that can be a sticking point for some musicians. Some musicians have got very defined ideas of what they would like out of their piece of music, which sure. is equally fine. But it just means that it it can never reach its full potential almost because it can only reach the potential met by one person rather than Absolutely. a group of. And I think a psychologist told me this once, um, that it's very difficult to psychoanalyse yourself because you purposefully put barriers up yeah. to understanding what your underlying intention is. Yeah, yeah and sense. And it's the same with him because music is a psychological process and that you're expressing something deep down and you have an idea from your ego's point of view, how you want that to come across. And if someone else comes in and says, actually, I think there's a an element of irony here and that we need to take it in another direction, then that's a real knock to your ego. And yeah. you can go, well, no, I'm, I'm the hero in this story. Yeah, yeah. Dude, you're not. You're this, not. You're, that's this, not the way. And, and so that's why it is 
really useful as an artist to be able to take that step back. Did, were you doing that even with that first band? And like, even or like, because I know my first band, I we definitely did not think that far into anything. Like, there was maybe some thought somewhere, but it was much more about you know, we got to write a cool song. Totally, and yeah. that was the <laughs> that was really the outcome and goal. Same here. Yeah, we were learning our instruments through making music. It was a very efficient and cheap alternative to getting piano or guitar lessons. Yeah, yeah. It was just, okay, we're going to spend six hours in a room together making a racket. It's going to sound dreadful, um, but it's going to sound better in the last hour than it did in the first hour. Yeah, yeah. And that's how we learned. So you kind of learned like cumulatively, like together. Yeah. And there was an an element of competition there as well because at that point there were two songwriters in the band and in order for there to be a, a process, one of us would have to turn up with a, a song, some chords and an idea. Yeah. Okay, this is how, this is how it goes, guys. And then, okay. and if it was a really good song, it guaranteed that the following following week, that other songwriter would come back with an even better song. Yeah, yeah. And it was this constant um, arms race of a song. Oh, it was terrible. Yeah. Looking back now, the songs we were producing and recording it was just our first songs and but it laid the foundations for understanding what the processes were and what we were trying to achieve from that and now funnily enough Noel works in music education and so do I that we is that Noel Pryor yeah oh you're in the band with Noel Pryor yeah we were That's right cool. back in the early days um so and anyway so both both good songwriters there you go yeah. that, that competition worked out yeah yeah but I but I do think um Noel Pryor taught me music tech, by the way. That's how I know Pryor. Wow. No. Yeah. Back in the early days. Back in the early days. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think that competition thing's a big thing, though. I, I remember when I first started playing that it was, I was very fresh and green to it. And there were some really good musicians in that group of musicians. And I was like, well, I need to get as good. And then it was like, well, I could play. I think I could play that better than them. Yeah. I think I can maybe do that. Like, so I got to try and work really hard to get better than that. And I and I think sometimes you're even in competition with yourself to get better. Yeah. I've I've definitely had that sometimes where I've come out of a gig and I've gone, that wasn't good enough. That wasn't good enough. I need to be better than that. <laughs> well, what you're saying about the other musicians from that point, we we became established. I think we played a school assembly first. Was that your first ever gig? Well, I'm pretty sure we did a school assembly in year nine, or right. something like that. And we were like, "This is this is it. <laughs> we have arrived, biggest gig." Ever. I mean, if you were going to de- design the most difficult audience to play to, it would be a group of year nine kids in yeah. your cohort. But I mean, that is high pressure. That stuff. is pretty high pressure. Like you've got it. After you've performed, you've got to walk out and see them all yeah. for the rest of the day, the rest of the week. Did we nail it? And it was really saying something about who we were as individuals. We then, it went well. So we went and rinsed the um, Reaper Graphics department budget. Yeah. And we we took some... Hang on. We'll get, we'll get... Squeaky door. <laughs> you all right? I'm not going to be able to drink the soup because of continuity. <laughs> you can drink it. Yeah, that yeah. that is the main worry. Like no, I'm good. I'm good. Thank you very much, babe. Legend. I'll, I'll be out in a minute. Yeah. Good limbo. My, 
I might restart the camera while we're. Oh, yeah, cool. Legend. So, uh, so I get back to the. So we, we played to our year nine um, cohort and it went well. And we figured, well, we could we could do a proper gig now. We're ready. Ready. Um, Straight away. And the White House in Penhallow was run by these two crusty old farmers. There was never anyone in there. Yeah. You, We already, at year nine age, we could go up there. We used to go up there to play pool. It wasn't too far from where we rehearsed. So we'd go up there to play pool. And you know, we always fancied the idea of having a pint. And <laughs> so... We sort of tested the water a little bit and ordered a shandy, oh, and yeah. they didn't bat an eyelid. Sure, shandy. We got a shandy. Then pint, pint of lager, please. Sure, pint lager. I think they were just pleased to be <laughs> selling some beer. There's never anybody there, so we realised that there was no. And this is going back into ninety seven, yeah, ninety six, ninety seven, and and Cornwall was. And Cornwall, Far and out of the way in most was, places, you know. <laughs> and this was a pub that from the outside looked like it was closed. I don't think anyone yeah. was... They, would, they just wanted to sell some beer to yeah. someone. I anyone. think it was like Cornwall back in the 90s was equivalent to England in the 60s. That's the way... <laughs> yeah, my, you might be right. My dad always used to say that. It's, yeah. it's basically the same. <laughs> so we realised that not only had we stumbled across what could be our first gig, but it was also somewhere that potentially all of our friends could get served. <laughs> um, by this point, we might have progressed into year 10, but we, were, we weren't at the top of, top of the school by this point. Um, so we, we, we said to the guys, the guys that ran the pub, um, how would you feel about our band doing a gig here? And they went, how many people do you think will show up to this year gig? We went, <laughs> well, I don't know, 50, 60? Went, You're done. Brilliant. Nope. Yeah, great. Done. Brilliant. <laughs> so they cleared out the downstairs basement area, which was pretty big. And we brought our practice PA in. We set up and we did a little sound check and it was, it was cool. And, uh, and we made posters and we put them up all around our school. Classic. It, like this is clip art stuff yeah, back yeah. in 96, 97. Printed off on a dot matrix printer. Printed off in the, on the school printer. Yeah. And uh, and everywhere. We posted everywhere for this gig. <laughs> and word got round initially, oh, Ryan and Noel and Niall and Kemba, they're doing this gig at this at a pub. A pub. Are we allowed to go? Yeah, yeah. We can. Apparently it's it's under 16s. They're out there. Uh-huh. All right, cool, done. Um, and I think maybe 10, 15 people were planning to go. And then word got around that anyone can get served at this pub. <laughs> and it went from 10 to 15 people to being the entire year group was going and the year above and a few of the cool kids from the year below. And it was epic. Like the car park was full. These two farmer guys that were running, running the place were run off their feet. And we walked out. We actually we were so... We hadn't thought about how many people were going to be there because our, the room that we were using as our dressing room was at the back of the room and the stage area was at the front. And there were so many people crammed in there, we couldn't get to it. We're like, what do we do? So we ended up kind of doing this weird can-can across, like trying to force our way through the crowd. <laughs> and we got on stage and we did our gig um, and there was moshing and there was beer going everywhere and there was people that shouldn't have been drinking throwing up in the garden outside. <laughs> it was carnage. Um, and yeah, it was, that was it. That was 
when I knew that this is what I was going to do for at least the next 20 years. That's a pretty epic, like, first proper gig. It was, yeah, it was like, it was cool. Yeah. And yeah. we what the difference was, I mean, you could probably have gauged it in our posture. The day that we arrived back in school, because it was Friday night, it was the Monday morning afterwards. That Monday morning, we walked through the school like conquering heroes. <laughs> Shoulders back, you heads high. <laughs> All right, how's it going? Their heads yeah. grew four times bigger that day. Well, we needed to talk less and sort of gesture more. And it was all about, hi, yeah, yeah, I'm in the band. And anyway, it went on from <laughs> the there. Ba- was that the name as well? Just <laughs> the, the band. band. <laughs> it was called The Way. Was the, was oh, the, that, that's, all, that's pretty close. The Way. It's, it's very late 90s, isn't it? I yeah, can, it was. I can see that, The Way. Yeah. yeah, we were listening to like Silverchair and stuff like you curb dog don't know either of those yeah. bands really obscure the more obscure the better right um butthole surfers <laughs> that one got cut <laughs> <laughs> um and we word got round that this band had arrived in Trotheris school richard lander or was it panair had their band which was called itchy at the time and there was another band in one of the Troy schools called Outcast, and uh, what that, that Outcast? No, it was different. Outcast. <laughs> right, okay. Um, pre pre Outcast again. All these people, the guys from Itchy, Luke Toms, he went on to sign to EMI. Sean Lascelles, he is tour manager for Rudimental, I think. All right. Okay. Um, and yeah, there's lots of lots of people in those bands that went on into into the music industry we arranged we're like well let's see what they got because you you couldn't watch them online back in those days so we wrote a letter to the the bands of Penn Air and Richard Lander (laughs) school this by this point we were coming to the end of year 11 right halfway through year 11 and we we had done lots of gigs around Cornwall at this point taken by parents in the back of bands going to do these gigs and uh and they all they they rocked up to our school to do this we call it schools out forever and <laughs> it had the similar sort of emotional intensity and excitement as that first gig at the white house in penhallow and that everyone was like well we can't get hammered on this but it's gonna rock and they were awesome outcast and itchy were amazing yeah loved it one was this sort of soul funk thing and uh, outcast was kind of like Beastie Boys rap with a bit of grunge thrown in there and and we were kind of grungy rock and it worked really well and somehow we got involved with the guys from the Hall for Cornwall who then said well, let's redo that gig at the Hall for Cornwall it's just when the Hall for Cornwall had changed from County Hall to Hall for Cornwall right? and we did the Schools Out Forever gig at the Hall for Cornwall with I think it was like 600 people there. And at the time, the capacity was quite low yeah. um, for, for Hall for Cornwall. And we were like, well, this is it. We're megastars. We've just played, we've played the biggest venue in Cornwall. We've, we've nailed done. it. We're, we're done. done. We're done. What do we do next? And that, so that was the end of secondary school, age that, 16, 17. That is like a pretty epic beginning to a musical career, isn't yeah. it? Like by that point, I hadn't even picked up an instrument yet. 
So you're like, <laughs> well, you should have milked that secondary school career because that's the point when the girls think you're the coolest. <laughs> College time, they start to go, oh, he's just a bit showy, showy offy, showy offy. And actually, I yeah. value the the other arts more. But at sort of that period in time, fourteen to sixteen, that's when the girls were going, whoa, he plays the guitar. <laughs> And yeah. it's uh, that it's downhill from there. Yeah, that 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 explains why I'm so showy offy. That, that does explain <laughs> yeah. it. It, was, it all started in college, so yeah. you know it, it's a perfect analogy, really. <laughs> yeah. So I went on from there to go to Troy College, um, which I, was which was in the early 2000s. Troy College had a lot of like bands coming out of it, didn't it? And and I I don't know if that's still the case actually, but I know until. I left there at least at the very least there was it was well known for having good bands leaving yeah. coming out of Truro. Yeah, I agree with that. Because that's why I went there. Like, I that actually was my went goal. I did um uh English sociology law. I didn't study music when I went to college. Oh crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um I still played in bands and that is why I got such poor A level results. Yes. But um I kind of took it on board from my parents. They were like get you into the music thing but maybe you should get some A-levels behind you and then you could consider a career in music late down the line you're still going to do your gigs and from my point of view I taught myself how to play my instrument up until this point yeah yeah um, I figured well I don't know I don't know if, I think yeah. I had such a bad experience with secondary school music at that point I kind of felt that college would be an extension of that yeah. So I, I took the academic subjects and not that music isn't academic, yeah. but I took the, the mainstream subjects and carried on teaching myself how to play an instrument and then flirting with recording processes as well. I was yeah, interested yeah. in recording my own music. So it was good. Certainly the English language element gave me a really good insight into um, creative processes in poetry yeah, and yeah. sociology as well. That was interested in. I was interested in kind of anthropology and humanity and and how people interact with each other. So it gave me a really good foundation for moving on from there. I finished at college and I went to study English with media at Falmouth University, and I did that for about six weeks. And by this point, <laughs> I was in another band with a a really cool songwriter. Um, who so there's three songwriters in this band now is and it still the same it was still core? noel we had a guy called luke toms who's playing drums at this point right. who is also an incredible songwriter yeah and a guy called rory joseph who oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so there's me noel prior no. luke toms and rory joseph yeah. and the bass player was still niall tomlinson um and we were that that was our our band and rory had gone up to london to try and convinced record labels that they needed to give us a record deal <laughs> and i think i did six weeks at Falmouth university before someone went let's go to london and try and get a record deal like, yeah <laughs> it's the right time for it though it was like like the band boom was bit because i'm guessing that's like early 2000 yeah. nearly late 90s early 2000 yeah it would have been yeah 2000 i can't figure it out actually yeah but about I, then i think like that band boom was massive between like you know 
Oasis, sadly. Yeah. And um and probably like twenty ten. Like sure. like record labels were just signing bands because they were doing so well. The indie thing was just rising up through the charts, wasn't it? And yeah. And turning into something quite drastically different than just indie music. It wasn't Oasis necessarily more as a much broader category of music, wasn't it? So sure. So yeah, it totally makes sense that that would be the time to do it. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's where we went and it didn't work out that we didn't get that record deal. Um although we came close on quite a few different occasions. I think we did some battle of the bands um and we played some sort of showcase gigs. Yeah. But it's quite difficult being from Cornwall because you're competing against people who in the industry have got onto the radar. Um, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. And bearing in mind, we were only 17, 17, 18 at the time. And suddenly we turned up with this quite quirky sound with no fan base playing gigs on the bottom of the bill. And I, I just, yeah, maybe it wasn't meant to be. Yeah. Like I said, it's it's a tricky one in that it's a good time. But equally, because it's a good time to be in a band. All the bands are all, it's happening for everyone, isn't it? So it's like, it's like you've got more competition almost at that point. So we went on from there. I came back and Luke Toms convinced me to come and audition for Truro College. And because I hadn't done a, uh, the ND, the National Diploma in Music, I wasn't eligible to go on to the HND. And because I had no formal music training either, it was a little bit like, well, I don't think you'll be able to do the HND. But Paul Jennings, who was the lecturer at the time, said, you're not really what we're looking for, but we'll we'll whip that out of you. <laughs> and sort you took, me on, took me on board. And I spent all of my time in the school recording studio um, playing music. I'd yeah. moved out of home by this point. And I think the fact that I didn't have to pay council tax anymore was <laughs> was one of the main selling points for being there. So I spent all my time recording stuff in that school studio and making networks with new musicians and starting new bands and new projects. And it developed from there. It was it was an exciting time. Were you were you in the Hitchcock Rules by then? Yeah, the Hitchcock Rules started at in the second year of college because. I went to London again. So I was in Luke's year and I did my first year of the HND and then another opportunity came up. I think I was asked to help with a a festival and I thought, well, I'll drop out of college again and I'll go and do that. So I I took a a year off and I went up to, he was definitely back in London. I think it was designing a festival called Beats Breaks Live and I was helping with the production on that. Right. Um, and I worked on that for for six months, and then I came back and I rejoined the year below um, as they came up to do my second year, and that was when I met Dan Cole and Rich Mulrine, Stu, and who else? AJ Lawney, and we put this band called the Hitchcock Rules together. Yeah, and that was really good fun. Um, and that was with me as the songwriter and frontman but they were all very capable musicians yeah yeah. whereas and more so than i was i came from this background of being a bit of a blag artist (laughs) knowing some chords and a few extensions but not really yeah yeah having 
the musical skills to carry it off. Um, so do you reckon that like collaborative again it did helped you lift up it, and they didn't have any interest at all in lyric writing or melody top line melodies but they were very good players yeah very good rhythm players yeah, and yeah. AJ was a great lead player and so Stan um so that yeah that formed this really cohesive basis and we we recorded an album within the first uh maybe six months of being at college and we put that out and it did really well and then we went off on tour and it was who had the least points on their license and the cheapest insurance <laughs> and we'll put them as the main driver. We did a load of gigs around Cornwall. Let me guess, was that the bass player? No, it wasn't. It was, oh. the, it was the drummer actually. It was Rich, one of the ever. It was, was one of the older ever. than us. Oh, uh, right. Okay. So he, uh, <laughs> he managed to accumulate some more points. <laughs> uh, well, he, no, he had the least points. Oh, uh, right. Okay. And he okay. had the cheapest insurance. So Rich became designated driver for, for most of our gigs um and dan as well dan was only a few years younger than rich um so those guys were in charge of driving <laughs> sit in the back and and uh bounce around with the, the pa gear but we did loads of gigs and that's probably something that'd be interesting to your listeners is that the gigs in 2004 2005 were very different to the the ones that are around now that every pub had live music that yeah. you could well i've got my old diaries still from our gig bookings and we would play from monday through to monday pretty much all year round with a, a little gap just before christmas and just after christmas where it would be quiet and the schedule would be you would get ready for festival season um from april through to may april may and then you would go out on festival season from june july august maybe a little bit of september and play as many gigs in between that as well. And then you would do a bunch of local gigs from September through to November, and then a little bit of a hiatus where you'd write some music. Yeah, and, and I, I agree with that. Because I, I started playing in 2005, and I started playing straight into a band. And within three years, I'd done 100 gigs, which now I think about it is absolutely insane. But... There was just like every local pub just wanted a band. Yeah. And all the bands were like, well, I want to play a gig. So it was just like the perfect, and they would pay you as well. Not masses, but enough to cover fuel. So it cost you nothing to go to the gig or and maybe even a bit more sometimes, depending where you got that gig. And sure. it was just a really good scene to be in. You could go out with your mates, have a gig together, all of you get paid, have a good time and then go home. Like, yeah. That, well, that was the vibe. Yeah, yeah. It was a great... It was a great, I just don't know where it really disappeared, but I know when I moved away, when I came back, that wasn't the case anymore. Mm. So it it must have happened fairly swiftly, that, that changeover. Yeah, I think it did. I think it was a, a pronounced transition. Um, but it was... Because we, we had kind of established ourselves and we had a really good following and we had a couple of records out. We were playing over 100 gigs a year and we were making two, 250 quid as a sort of base rate for a gig. Sometimes you get a really good gig, which would pay three, 400 quid, um, or you'd do a ticket split. Yeah. Um, and so it was a living that we, we put, I think we put half of that into buying new PA system or replacing drum heads or buying recording studio kit. Um, and then the rest of it went to pay our rent. Um, and we, you know, 
I think Dan and Rich held the uh, the biggest bill for the um, alcohol consumption. Those, <laughs> those boys would drink quite a lot. Even and, though they were the drivers? Well, yeah. <laughs> we wouldn't drive home after a gig. No. It would be, right, we're sleeping in the van. Or sleep in the van. Or find somewhere to stay. The, the watering hole used to be really good for just sleeping at the watering hole. Oh, yeah? Yeah. You could sleep on the yeah, cold yeah. floor of the watering hole. Yeah, which was horrible. Not a nice place <laughs> to stay. But it was a possibility. I remember we did a New Year's there once and it was, um, yeah, we stayed on the floor of the watering hole. Class. Not yeah. good. It was because my car got stuck in the sand. <laughs> <laughs> oh, any problems of that time. And I think they, they had the tractor, but the guy who drove it had gone or something. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> he wasn't there. So, yeah, my car was just stuck in the sand. I slept in the... Many the fate of a, of a, of a musician at the Warren Hill. Yeah, yeah. So yep. then we went on to going from the pub gigs and the festivals to trying to establish, and it's this really difficult jump that you make from free gigs paid for by the landlord on beer sales to ticketed events. And how do you make that transition and how do you make it make sense to your audience who have been used to just rocking up and drinking six pints in order to legitimise you playing at a pub and now they've got to turn up and they've got to shell out, with, shell out a fiver to yeah. get into the building. And even a fiver can be a bit of a like... Ooh, that's, yeah, that's yeah. three pints back yeah. in... And I, I think it was like, I think six or seven quid was pretty normal as well. I don't even think it was a fiver. I think it was normally like six or seven quid. And then you're like, oh, plus fuel on that. Because in Cornwall, but there's it's always dry. fuel. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's always fuel on top and parking. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, I'm, I'm rocking on 20 quid here to get go to, to a gig. A band. Yeah, I don't, yeah. don't know if I like it that much. Yeah. So we started doing shows at the uh, Princess Pavilion. That yeah. was what we thought would be. And um, we didn't just do us playing at the Princess Pavilion, we would organise what we kind of thought was the best selection of artists around Cornwall at that time. And we would cur- curate these events. Um, and we had Ben Howard at one of them. He was heading right. the acoustic stage. And we had Rory Joseph. And um, we had uh, Winter Mountain. Um, and loads of really cool bands at the time. And they it was enough to band us all together and would do maybe a £10 ticket um, price and we'd run two stages and would whilst the main stage was changing the acoustic stage would be running um, and, I, and my band in college copied this from Ryan or Ryan might have copied it from us who really knows who <laughs> can really tell I'm going to tell you it's probably us copying it from Ryan because <laughs> our final performance was in fact Ryan performing oh was it and it was it was and because I after a few weeks ago I said I said to you about um about I'm sure we played a gig with you and I, I looked it up in my my list of gigs and yeah it was you guys performing and we had an acoustic stage as well of right. some of the guys from our school from college and it was us and oh who else was on someone else was the Sycamores ah, remember the, I Sycamores? Love the Sycamores yeah Sean White Jason White yeah 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 I think it was the Sycamores you guys and us guys and I think there was someone else as well. So what was the bass player from the Sycamores called? Oh, I can't remember. Was it Rich? Richard? Yeah, something like that. I can't remember his name now. But I, I used to feel so sorry for so the Sycamores. No one will remember this. because, But the Sycamores were, and my memory's terrible, but Jason, um, the guitarist. I can't remember any names. And <laughs> I can't help you here. <laughs> I can't remember the drummer either. But they were these 
absolutely Adonis guys, and they they were black, beautiful, <laughs> incredibly charismatic, really good players as well, really like, good players, really... and they were ripped. And the bass player was this pot bellied pasty white guy <laughs> and they used to always get their tops off and the girls would go mental yeah. oh, so amazing we love them and they're awesome musicians as yeah, well yeah. and I used to always be like oh man <laughs> I feel so I'm sorry awful. for the bass player <laughs> are we Was it really guys are we going to get our tops off again <laughs> why don't we just like not, not. tonight <laughs> like, no let's do it like, oh, but if you do I'll have to and everyone will be like Looking at you, and I'll be like, mm. trying to think. Well, there was another band. The guy, oh, what were they called? The, the guitar. Marvin and the Gays. Uh, no, no, Ray. They were in our year. They, they were, were in good. our year. Yeah, right then. Ray. Um, no, it was Andrew Bates. No, it was AJ's band, but I can't remember what they were called. Oh, the name escapes me. Too many names. But there, there was like an acoustic stage and Steph Newton played on that one, oh, I think. Yeah. And someone else. We put we put on a show Am anyway. You, you can drink your so soup. But yeah, there was um yeah, it was a good it was a good show. I remember it being quite well. And um but we didn't make any money on it because we charged too much money for it. Uh, yeah, yeah. We did we did the classic. We I think we charged like ten pounds a ticket or something along that. And it was that was pretty um pretty rich so we had to play it made the maths easy yeah but How we much did we charge 10 pound a ticket yeah, easy yeah. To work out then. and we and we didn't because it was like the final project we had to like break even or something something random like that you know yeah. it's part of the b-tech you had to break even or make money and because we didn't make money we had to play another gig for the school that for Truro to make the money back so they took the profit from that oh gig. man and that's just so that and I blame Paul, Ryan for yeah. not promoting it enough basically <laughs> <laughs> so who was I who was I playing with Hitchcock, Hitchcock Rules, Rules. Oh, yeah yeah right. yeah there yeah. you go yeah I found it the other day oh thought I'd bring it up here <laughs> the mother days yeah so yeah, it was from good. there I it was went a good gig. on I went on to oh, we just used to make stuff up so we decided to do a schools project where we were just just in that period when the festival season had finished and you're doing the local gigs as a musician we were earning 50 quid each a night and we were playing four or five nights a week so we were making okay yeah and back then so we were making two 250 each and by this point we had all moved into the same house together and we were sharing the bills all we did was music, so we didn't have any other hobbies. There wasn't any other costs involved. Yeah. We were selling some records as well, which back then you'd sell a CD for £10, and we shifted a couple of thousand CDs. As, and that's not an insign- insignificant amount of money. No. Um, so we had cash coming in, we had the PRS coming in and the PPL, and we're, we're doing all right. Yeah. Um, and we had, so we, we had our days free which meant going for runs on the beach and hanging out and writing songs. But we also used to just make stuff up and go, oh, let's do a, I don't know, let's do a schools project where we'll get them to rebrand a band. And we were kind of flirting with the idea of arts council funding. Going, well, wouldn't it be really cool if we got a new generation of people interested in music? Yeah. yeah. No, we weren't being paid for it. There was no reason for it. It was just an idea I dreamed up and went, and the guys went, no, I'm not doing anything. Right, yeah, why not? <laughs> so we got in touch with uh, Penryn School and we got in touch with 
um, Brannell School and with Camborne School. I said, we're going to do this thing. We're going to take the Hitchcock rules and then we're going to pre- pretend that they aren't the Hitchcock rules and we want a school to rebrand them, to market a gig um, that they're going to do and then to do all the the business and finance behind it. So yeah. Camborne School did the the graphic design and the the name and the artwork. Penryn did the the media outreach stuff where they wrote the press releases and got in touch with um, local and national papers and did radio interviews. And Brannell School did all the finance and they figured out how much it's going to cost and what the transport was going to be, what ticket prices had to be in order to cover the bus fare for all of these schools. Yeah, yeah. And by the time I thought of the idea... We had done it. <laughs> we had gone yeah. and make it happen. And we didn't get any funding. We applied for funding. We thought this is a really fundable project. Nobody paid for us to do it. We'll just do it anyway. <laughs> so we went in and we did this this um, rebrand the band project. And I think Ben played on that one as well. With but by this point he was getting quite big. I kind of vaguely remember this. And like I do, I do remember this we did it we launched our last the last record that we released uh released called for my monster and we had i think we had like 500 balloons up in in the (laughs) we had this the kids wanted to have this big net above the pavilion that would release all these balloons the last song but the um the guy who was the lighting technician went we can't do that boy against health and safety we're like we've got 500 balloons blown up now he went tell you what give me here (laughs) <laughs> there was a, a hatch above the pavilion where you can walk up there. And he, he must have been in his mid-60s. And he went up there dragging all of these balloons with him. And he spent the whole gig getting them set up. And he pushed 500 <laughs> balloons out of a hatch <laughs> over all these kids. Um, and this confetti. And it was a really cool gig. And it kind of... What I'm getting at here is that the entrepreneurialism within music yeah, yeah. is so important because... I realised that if I wasn't gigging, I could be designing projects. And if I wasn't designing a project, I could be recording artists and building studios. If I wasn't doing that, I could be running events and production. So I went on to then run... uh, I met a lady called Jane Montague who ran the Eden Sessions. And I went, Jane, why is there not a local band stage at the Eden Project? And she went, oh, I don't know. Well, let's make one. And she went, what do you mean just make one? Give Give me a budget name your price, what's your overspend on the main stage, and I'll make it happen. And she went, all right, well, I can pay you 500 quid per session to do a local band stage. Mm. And I got in, f- in touch with my mates at a company called Evo Sound who had done all of our touring and said, look, we've got 500 quid. The bands will play for free. Could you put in a decent rig um, and a covered stage and it'll be a bit of a promo for you guys? All right. And then Rob Simpson, who's a, a bit of a, a PA legend, he would have been nineteen, twenty back then. So I mean, he's in his late thirties now. Yeah, but he's quite a uh, a businessman, and he went into the Eden Project and he made a case for well, you could put in a mediocre mediocre stage and a mediocre PA system, and we could just about scrape in the whole production for five hundred quid, or you could represent your brand by doing something more industry standard and respecting the artists. Yeah. And, and they went, oh, fine. So they they paid him properly to put the stage right stage in and we had so many and that was it the buzz Cornwall had always felt like the Eden Project's live shows from 99 onwards 
was something to be proud of yeah, in Cornwall, yeah. but it really alienated the local bands. And then all of a sudden the local bands had a foundation. And again, I've spoke about Ben Howard before, but I fought, I got Ben oh, Howard. One sec. <laughs> Don't know how much I missed. That was just me chatting about putting on gigs, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so having um, ben, Howard. ben Howard on at the Pavilion gig right when he was first starting out doing jam nights, I then was like, let's get him on. Because I, I loved Ben right from the early days. I thought really liked his sound and his vibe. Um, it got him on at the stage right stage. And I all, the way it works is a lot of the major labels who had their major artists on the main stage wanted their smaller breaking artists to come and do something as well. And if they weren't good enough to support the main artist, they'd say, well, can you get them on your stage right stage? Yeah. So we used to have all the, the sub label acts, like the, the breaking acts. Yeah. I was trying to think, I, I saw the Kaiser Chiefs. Oh yeah. There at the Eden project. Yeah. I'm trying to think he was on the stage, right. There was someone who got really big later on on the stage right, but I can't think who it was off the top of my head. Do you know? Well, I'm pretty sure the Hitchcock rules were the support for the Kaiser Chiefs. You were indeed. Because that was the... But you were on the main stage. We were on the main stage. And that was the gig where I met Jane Montague. Um, Okay. And that's when I... Because that that was her. She was the one who kind of made that coup. She'd gone, let's get a local band on. Who are these... Find me a local band. Right, She's okay. like quite a big time music producer yeah. uh, or like a festival producer. She said, Find me a local band. Someone Maybe, who's... Who played there the next year then? Oh, I can't, I can't remember. When were Muse? Were they the year after that? Honest, it's all blurs the, into one. It was one of the years. I thought it was when I saw the Kaiser Chiefs there was another. But Muse, maybe it might have just been the fact that you guys were playing. So it was a local band it was, on the main stage. There was James Morrison. He played there one year. Um... And he played there with his the band that he used to be in. Right. That's my phone. <laughs> um, let me just go and hang up on that. Yeah. Give you ten seconds. Ten seconds. I'm trying to think who I saw. Who did you see, Gary? It's Gary podcast. I know. Well, I just can't remember who I saw. I was trying to think. It was. I I remember now you said it. It was you guys before the Kaiser Chiefs. Yeah. But and who was supporting that? Someone else was supporting them as well, though, wasn't it? It was oh, um. Who's the one? Da, 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 mm. Was it those guys? What are they called? Um. Wasn't that? What are they called? Oh, that's um. I know who you mean. Was um, it? Was it those guys? It was the guy. Yeah, it was It wouldn't have been them. Surely not. They were huge. Not um, by that point, they weren't, were they? Oh, what are they called? Was, what's the Fratellis. Oh, I wasn't thinking of the Fratellis. Is it, uh, is it the Fratellis? I can tell you a story about the Kaiser Chiefs, though. <laughs> is it? This is non. <laughs> no, this is quite funny. <laughs> All right, so, at this particular gig where I was um, supporting the Kaiser Chiefs, I'd met Jane and she had championed local music. She's yeah, really yeah. nice and she was saying all right, let's do it. Let's get a local band stage up and running. Uh, don't screw it up. She's that, kind of, <laughs> she's that sort of person. She would trust you, but she would say, you mess this up, you're dead. Done. <laughs> <laughs> so I know, okay, cool. Anyway, so because I was chatting with Jane and the other side of her was the Kaiser Chiefs manager and this guy came up to me and he said, 
all right, mate, I uh, really like your gig. And I went, oh, thanks very much. Made sense. Anyway, <laughs> do I suppose you could get me a uh, a couple of free complimentary tickets for the Kaiser Chiefs, could you? And I was, I'm, I still like to think of myself as quite a nice guy. And I went, oh, um, I'll see. Why is that? And he went, well, I've got this school that I run and we're doing a, we're doing a music competition and we wanted to make the prize some tickets to see a band. I was like, oh, that sounds pretty cool. Well, let, let me have a chat. I'll see if I can sort it out. So I went around and I spoke to Jane, who was chatting to the Kaiser Chiefs manager at the time. I said, look, this is a bit of a big request, but there's a school up in uh, uh, Cranley that is doing a competition for new musicians and they're looking for a couple of tickets to come and see the Kaiser Chiefs um, and it will be a prize for whoever wins this competition. And they're going, oh, that sounds, sounds great. Oh, that sounds lovely. We'd love to do that. We'd love to help out. Brilliant. Uh, let, let, them, let me know what the dates are and what the names are and I'll put them down as complimentaries on the door. Sort it out. So I went back to this guy and said, yeah, sorted it. All you need to do is let me know or let Jane know who you want on the door, and we'll sort it as complimentary. So, oh, amazing, brilliant, cool. Well, thank you very much. And I said, no, it's no problems at all. And he went, <laughs> I don't suppose you, I mean, it's really cheeky of me, but I don't suppose you'd be up for coming and like judging our competition, would you? And I went, oh. Nothing better to do. <laughs> or, or, yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm a musician in Cornwall doing, well, when is it? Well, it'll be, uh, he told me the dates. And it, I wasn't doing anything. He said, we could pay you, pay your fuel up there and we'll put you up. Um, and my girlfriend at the time was a photographer. And I said, well, can I bring my girlfriend? And he said, oh, of course you can. You can stay with us. We'll put you up and we'll feed you and we'll make a real big deal out of it. And then you can have a day of looking at everything that's going on. And then you can judge the competition. And they went, well, I could do a songwriting workshop on the next, on the day after. I said, oh, that'd be an amazing prize. Amazing. You could do a songwriting workshop with the runners up. Oh, done. So... I go up to Cranley and I do this day of listening to all this music and this fantastic classical musicians. It was a private school and it was a, a residential private school. So lots of the students were on yeah, site yeah. and stayed up there with my girlfriend at the time and made it a bit of a trip. And she took loads of photos for the school to use in their publicity. And it came to the presentation with all the parents and he said, well, I would like to introduce to you the manager of the Kaiser Chiefs, Ryan Jones. <laughs> and I went, what the, what? The manager of the what? And my girlfriend looked at me and she's like, the what? Just go over it. And I went, thanks. And the winners are, and, I, and then I went up to him and was like, dude, I'm, I'm not the manager of the Kaiser Chiefs. Yeah. Well, that's that's who they pointed out as the manager of the Kaiser Chiefs at that gig. And you got tickets for the Kaiser Chiefs show. I was like, yeah, because I asked the manager of the Kaiser Chiefs <laughs> if we could have some tickets. You say, so you're not the manager of the... No. <laughs> what are you doing here? I was like, you asked me to come here. <laughs> There's this whole... So how Ryan communication. The, man the manager for the Kaiser Chiefs for one day. Oh, Okay. Uh, For the rest of the day, you're the manager of the <laughs> yeah. Kaiser Chiefs. So I had to do this songwriting workshop the next day. And I think he was a bit bemused at why the manager of the Kaiser Chiefs why was would, doing a songwriting workshop. I was going to say, why would they have done a songwriting workshop? He just rolled with, with it. He must have thought, well, this guy seems pretty cool. He knows what he's talking about. He's got his tickets for a big gig, got our prize sorted. And he's 
speaks music language. <laughs> if he wants to do a songwriting workshop with our students, brilliant. You crack on. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was a, an interesting turn of events. That was very, but, you know, That's every pathway, you know. And then later on, I was hitchhiking. I'd, I'd, where, I'd been to a friend of mine's, oh, where was I? I can't remember his name. Um, Hugo, a guy called Hugo, who ran a record company called Pura Vida. And he was just a really cool guy. We used to hang out all the time. And I'd been to his place and I wanted to go to London. And he said, oh, my friends, um, Celia and Ian, who are running this new student festival. And they're getting up to London. They'll give you a lift. Right. Brilliant. Thanks, man. Sorted me out. So I hopped in with these guys and I set off on that journey. And they were running Beach Breaks Live Festival. Right. And I'm pretty sure, going back to what I said earlier, it hadn't been Beach Breaks Live that I was working on within my chronology when I took that year out. Must have been something else. Something else. else. But um, I set off not knowing these guys. And by the time we had got to London, I was the production manager for Beach Breaks (laughs) Live Festival. And they're like, right, you're going to be sorting out these stages and booking the artists and working with ACM at the time who were... they were fairly. Up. They would have been fairly smallish by that point, were they? Or are they bigger? Well, they they were pretty pretty established, but they were running the second stage, and I was running right. all of the other stages, like the acoustic stage and the new artist stage, and all of whatever stages they yeah, could dream yeah. up. Um, and that was it. Me and Ian and Celia were like the Cornish contingent of the beach. Beach Breaks Live planning department. So every time Ian would come down to Cornwall, he'd come and stay at our house. And every time there was like a local issue, he would roll me out and go, well, go and talk to these people who are objecting to our planning or go and talk to these councillors. And, um, and we did it for a, about, I think, three years I worked with those guys. Yeah. And it's a really cool gig. And that's what got me into the idea that running events could could be a career. Curious, okay. um, but my point is, is that having that outlook and that adventurous characteristic and musical ability as well means that you don't just have to be a session player. No. You could be... And I think that's a good one in that, like, having to say, not having, but saying yes to things can just lead to another situation just because it might not be what you initially thought in the first Mm. place. If you go in with an open mind it could definitely come out with something that you are super into sure. just from saying yes in that initial like contact. And it sounds like from what you've been saying, like a, a lot of the times you've said yes to something and just gone into it full force. And that's meant that no matter what it was, you came out the other side loving what you what you went into yeah. you know rather than just going in and being like yeah i guess kind of and then like yeah. muddling your way through it. it sounds like you kind of just went for it like as much as you could and that brought the enjoyment out of it and i think the anxiety that you feel around not having a degree in that particular area of expertise is one of the biggest things that will impede you in in making it work and, yeah. and you're right i did say I think it's one of the things my lecturers said. Is said as soon as you say no to something, it's not that you won't get asked for that particular time, but it'll be the next twenty times. Yeah, that's right. You have to if you get an opportunity come up in that particular area. If you're even mildly interested, say yes, and then cram, learn how to do it, speak to people, figure out what your methodology is going to be. And the worst case scenario is that you'll screw up that gig. And you won't be asked again. But if you say no, you're not going to be asked again either. You won't be asked again anyway. Yeah. And I think that 
if you're doing like depping work or any kind of session work as well that even if you have to say no it's really hard because by saying no you know that you're not going to get asked the next time so it it unless you you know unless you can justify and you know the guys and you make a worthy reason why you're saying no but it it really is a like if you can say yes as much as you can you will be able to probably make a career out of being a musician yeah whereas if you put up barriers all the time you're essentially putting a barrier up to your career one thing that i've always had is friendship groups in all the different areas that i work from engineering through to guitar or bass or piano um and having those people that you can say i'm booked but let me sort you out with this guy or that guy and that's almost as good as saying yes to the gig because what happens is the person who needs something you become known as a bit of a fixer that you've got a problem give this guy a call if he can't do it he'll put you in touch with someone who's good enough who can make it work and it's you'll be amazed if you're at school or college or university at the moment look around you and those people are going to be your default phone calls over the next 20 years when you go I need someone in IT or I need someone in technology or yeah. I need uh, another bass player. And going back to your competition thing when you're in when you're in school it's a competition to get better than them or whatever it might be against them. But later on when you get older they become someone that you know is as good as you yeah. because they were your direct like inspiration, point, inspiration and kind of sure. point of contact. So that quite often those guys become your your next person to ask or whatever because you know intrinsically how they play and how that compares to you if someone is looking for you and by by default as well if you have a bunch of successful mates or you're successful and you've got a bunch of skilled mates you become part of that sort of click yeah and not that i advocate being part of a click but But it's, it's not really that, though. It's, it's, it's really more useful like to a, have that respect for each other. Yeah. And to be able to support each other's careers as you go along. Yeah, yeah. It's really cool. So I think I think we're getting near the end now. And I, I think there's just one more question just before we end. And that is, how does life, music now affect your life as an adult? We, we talked about basically all your growing up stages, but, well, we're sat in your studio so I'm, well, this, pre- I'm pretty sure yeah. music still plays a fairly big role in your life. So as an adult, I am really interested in helping new musicians. And uh, I feel like I've been on quite a journey. And, and I I've, think that came through basically through your whole career. It sounds like you're kind of bringing up everyone around you. Yeah, So definitely. That's, that's still like a big theme in your life. Is Sure. And that's why I've built this place is so that it is a a base for working on projects yeah. and that now I've got kids and a wife and I can't live in the back of a transit van for 120 dates a year. (laughs) It's, uh, it's another way of having that creative expression and supporting, supporting, I was going to say music, but I think it's all about supporting creative expression. Most of the musicians and the songwriters that I work with are trying to say something which is very personal to their the core of their being and having an inspirational space that allows them to do that and allows that to be communicated with their audience is it's it's a huge 
therapy to not only them but also to their audiences and that that empathy that people feel for the subject matter that musicians write about and also as a as an art form that's that's changing i'm not going to say it's dying but <laughs> in the way that it's being created more people are sitting isolated in their bedrooms with yeah. a a microphone and a sample pack than musicians who are getting together and playing empathetically yeah. with other players in a space and really understanding and being truthful about what they're they're expressing. I think that is something that I'm really interested in. Yeah, and I, I think that came through in the first part of your songwriting thing is that, you know, you were really trying to get your mind into the space of the person writing the song and almost be empathetic of their position so that you can write in a in a real way, not just in a, you know, this is a, a love song. This is a love song. Sure. And they love someone. Yeah. The end, like, it, it's not that. It's going the one extra step to create a more well-rounded song, I guess. Like I think in any, in any career, as a, if you're a professional, if you can keep consistent, and and pushing yourself that I had a the people that I've I've worked with over the last 20 30 years they're um not 30 years 20 years they're they're at the top of their game and that there's people who are at the top of educational establishments people who are signed to major labels people that are working on major labels people who are the head of production for major artists and that pedigree of musicians that I've worked with through those years it kind of it still reflects on on me like yeah i i i chose to get married and had kid, have kids and live a more sedate life in cornwall <laughs> and um especially with the whole covid thing it's become a lot more introspective but the i still get those phone calls and i'm still in the address books of people that five or six years ago were going ah oh, who can i get to do that major show in london yeah. uh maybe as time goes by because I've not been available for some stuff I've moved down that but I had a call a year or so ago a couple of years ago just before covid um to do a a multi-band shoot over four days from a director friend of mine and yeah. he said yeah easy gig you're just gonna need to do the monitors headphone monitors and um record the audio and then I want you to mix and master it and sync it to video. Yeah, easy. And I, in the back of my mind, had presumed that was taking place at Falmouth University because that's where I had worked <laughs> this guy before. And it was only six weeks before the show when he checked in and said, so you all sorted for the show? You read the itinerary? I went, and I hadn't read the itinerary. <laughs> I just presumed it would be an easy gig. Yeah, 10 bands over over four days, just walking apart. That's that's easy it's not a rush at all and then i looked and the address was miami and i went ah passport <laughs> and but i mean that's the kind of show that the, these guys are working on all the time they're getting yeah. flown around the world to do major productions and it kind of reinforced the fact that up until 10 years ago i had been working at the top of my game um with people who had continued that trajectory and if you just keep relevant and doing good work that you believe in and you have a cohort of people that you're working with you'll only go up your trajectory will yeah, go up yeah. and you might end up being a major artist who signs to a record label at 19 and 
goes to the dizzying heights in two years. Or you might end up at 45 having built your career up to such a degree that you're running a production company. Yeah. Um, but it, you will and get you, there. And you can make a living off of your career. Like ne- neither one is right or wrong. Exactly. They're just two different paths to the same goal, really, yeah. aren't they? And I, I think that is, I think that's pretty damn. I think that's cool. <laughs> nice. I think that's cool. But um, hopefully this has inspired you to become a professional musician, just like the man drinking soup over there. <laughs> 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 drinking soup in the middle of the day, rock oh. and roll. Um, so yeah, hopefully this has inspired you and you feel like going, pick up your instrument, writing some songs or going out and maybe doing something different to progress your musical career. Um, but I think pretty much everything Ryan said there is put in place that thing we say at the every end of every episode, which is um, every pathway leads to your goals eventually. So just take them all. And until next time, I'll see you there. Bye. <laughs> the, wow. The, the, uh, the mug. Hey. Well, that's so good. Was that all right? Yeah, I think that was cool. I think that was cool, man. It will, it will cut down. <laughs> just set that audio is. Yeah, there's no audio now. Yeah, I forgot to tell you.